I won't be here. I'll try to remember to uh, remind everybody about that again next week. We will resume then on the first Monday in March. Now, chapter 8 is a forensic defense of the affirmation that Jesus of Nazareth is ontological God, God the Son, the I Am. Five times in this chapter he rolls out, ego eimi, I am. Do you get it? Do you believe it? Will you defend it? Though you be put on trial for your identification with I am. The Jews pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Are you falling at his feet declaring my Lord and my God? The Jews plot to seize him so as to destroy him. Are you seizing the I am and holding him fast? pressing this God-man to your breast so that you will not be destroyed. I have suggested that the exchange in verses 11, verses 12 to 19 is a summoning of the witnesses in defense of the claims of Christ. The legal issue hangs upon the law, the law of witnesses. Is Jesus' witness self-witness? The Jews so charge him, thus vitiating his claim, verse 13. The Mosaic law had specified that credible testimony was based on the evidence of two or three witnesses, Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15. But no case could be judged on the testimony of one witness. Jesus challenges the charge by producing the two witnesses, himself and his father, verse 18. The father testifies, the son testifies that the witness of Jesus is true. But this unsurprising conclusion for any orthodox student of scripture is reinforced by a subtle suggestion in verse 14. Where Jesus has come from and where Jesus is going is a dual appeal to the testimony of heaven, the above, the ontic arena, the not according to the flesh arena. Jesus summons the arena of his origin and his destiny to bear witness to his claim to be I am. This arena cannot be judged by the darkness, nor can it be judged according to the flesh. This arena can only be judged by the light, by those persons who belong to it, originally and eschatologically, not to mention ontologically, by the witnesses who know that arena. Once more, in this precious Gospel of John, we are astounded by the radical claims of Jesus, Christological self-witness grounded in ontological self-witness. One from the light, one who is the light, speaks what he knows. 
The darkness does not comprehend it. One from above, one who returns to the above, speaks what he knows. Those begotten according to the flesh do not understand it. One who reflects himself, one who reflects his father, speaks what he knows. Those who reflect their father, the devil, whose sons they are, do not understand. To know the son is to know the father. To know the one who has come down from above is to know the one above to whom he returns. To know the light is to know the father of lights in both of whom there is no darkness. This initial dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees is a profound self-defense of the ontological and Trinitarian claims of the Son of the Father. The Jews are confounded out of their own law, out of the two arenas, the arena according to the flesh, the arena not according to the flesh, out of the origin and destiny of the one who knows himself, even as he knows his Father also. Verses 21 to 29 advance, deepen, augment the defense of the ontological sonship of Jesus by a more than Christological witness, a more than eschatological testimony. In this second dialogic exchange between Jesus and the Jews, soteriological testimony is involved. The Christological witness in this section reflects the identity question, who are you, verse 25. That which Jesus has been claiming from, since from the beginning of this conversation, verse 12, that which Jesus has been claiming since the beginning of his conversations with the Jews, chapter 5, verse 17. That which Jesus has been claiming up to now, that he has been sent by the Father, verse 26, that he has been taught by the Father, verse 28, that he is with the Father and the Father is with him, verse 29, is repeated. The identity of Jesus, twice over ego eimi, I am. The eschatological testimony in this section reflects the origin and destiny question, verse 23, contrasts the two arenas, the two eons, the two worlds. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Christ has journeyed from the eschaton. He is destined to go away to the eschaton. His origin is not explained by this world. His origin is not explained by the below. From this eschatological arena, he has been taught. From this eschatological arena, he speaks. From this eschatological arena, he has been accompanied. All that personhood, all that knowledge, all that revelation, he has brought with him. The eschatological person, the eschatological wisdom, the eschatological revelation has appeared. The eschaton itself is a witness in Christ's defense.
But Christ adds a soteriological witness to his claim to ontic deity, introducing sin and death in verse 21. He duplicates the phrase in verse 24. Death is contrasted with where Jesus is going. Death characterizes the arena which the Jews inhabit. It is an arena in which they abide. They are in it. In their sins, in the arena of sin, destined to receive the wages of that arena, which is death, that is their domain. The origin and destiny of those in this arena is sin and death. They are in their sins by origin. They are destined to receive the penalty of their sins, which is death. Now the one who is not of this arena of sin and death claims to be able to lift them up out of this arena to an arena where there is no sin nor death. This soteriological claim will be evidenced when he is lifted up, verse 28. Jesus is testifying that the cross is a witness in defense of his claim to ontic deity. Jesus says, you will know when I am crucified that I am, ego eimi. We may be puzzled by this connection. How is the cross of Christ a witness to his deity? But the answer is because it is through the cross of Christ that sin and death are conquered. It is through the cross of Christ that the cursed powers of this world are broken. It is through the cross of Christ that the one from above takes upon himself the malediction of the below. No other person could qualify. No below person could take away sin because every below person is in their sins. No other person could satisfy. No person of this world could take away death, because every person of this world is in bondage to death. It must be some person from outside this world, some person from above, some person who is God himself, some incarnate God person who alone can take death without death, who can take sin without sin, who can take the curse without curse. Christ Jesus is that person. And the glory of his cross is not only the soteriological deliverance, the glory of his cross is that it confirms his self-witness, his father's witness, the witness of the Godhead, ego, amy, I am. Finally, the lengthy dialogic exchange in verses 31 to 59. An exchange in which Christ cross-examines the prosecution and its witnesses. There is a five-fold pattern which repeats itself throughout this section. Statement for the defense, response of misunderstanding by the prosecution, explanatory counter-defense by the accused. 
every statement of misunderstanding by the accusatory Jews is anchored in the history of redemption. The Jews appeal to their past, to their bloodlines, to their status as the favored Hebrews, to their divine origins. Jesus says the proof of their past is staring them in the face. I am your past come to fulfillment. I am the end of your bloodline. I am the favored son Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am divine in origin. I am all of these. Believe on me. Love me. Follow me. For I, I am true Israel. The redemptive historical thrust centers on Abraham, verses 39, verses 33, 39, 41, 52, 57, and sandwiched between Father Abraham is Father Satan, verse 44. The five-fold statement, misunderstanding, explanation, cross-examination produces Two additional witnesses, Abraham and the devil. Who are you? Who is your father? Whose son are you? This section powerfully contrasts the paternity of Jesus with the paternity of the Jews. It also draws from the covenant father of Israel marvelous biblical theological dynamics. Freedom, doing the truth, not seeing death, rejoicing to see Christ's day. These are not harsh anti-Semitic passages. They are candid antithetic passages. O Israel, to live and die like Father Abraham is to embrace life in Christ and never die. O Israel, to actualize the covenant of Father Abraham is to embrace Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. O Israel, to taste true liberty, is to cling unto Jesus in whom there is no bondage. O Israel, come to Christ. O seed of Abraham, come to Abraham's seed. Now the five-fold pattern falls out thus, and you can see it outlined in your outline. First unit is verses 31 to 37, the statement, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, verse 32. The misunderstanding, we have never been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say you shall become free? Verse 33, the explanation, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, verse 34. As a footnote, I take that as Christ affirming the bondage of the will Everyone who commits sin has no free will. His will is in bondage to sin. The second unit is verses 38 to 40. The statement, you do what you have heard from your father, verse 38. The misunderstanding, Abraham is our father, verse 39a. Explanation, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham, 39b. Third unit, verses 41 to 47. 
statement. You are doing the deeds of your father, 41A. Misunderstanding, we are not born of fornication, 41B. Explanation, you are of your father the devil, 44. Fourth unit, verses 48 to 55. Statement, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death, verse 51. Misunderstanding, Abraham and the prophets died, verse 52. Explanation, my father glorifies me, verse 54. The glorification of permanent, everlasting, never-ending life. Fifth unit, verses 56 to 58. Statement, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, verse 56. Misunderstanding, have you seen Abraham, verse 57. Explanation, before Abraham was, ego me, 58. The Abraham emphasis here is to underscore Israel's paternal and covenantal origins while affirming that Abraham was a Christian. Yes, Abraham was a Christian. He saw Christ's day. The diabolic paternal and filial origins, verse 44, is a trans-Israelite analepsis which carries Jesus' audience back to creation, to the beginning, to the garden, to the protological man. Protological Hebrew, Abraham, protological man, Adam. Eschatological Hebrew, Christ, Abraham's son, as well as the son of the father. Eschatological Adam, Christ, the last Adam, who is also son of God. It is not coincidental that these two figures are covenantal figures in the history of redemption. If one will object that Adam is not mentioned in verse 45, my response is irrelevant. The entire argument hangs upon the contrast of humans whose paternity is traceable to Adam's post-lapsarian father, namely the devil whose son he became, whose soul was murdered by the fall, whose lies he embraced when he alibied his transgression. Christ has come to reverse the fall by which we became children of the devil. Christ has come to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. In him, we who believe in Jesus are sons and daughters of Abraham. Christ has come to reverse the bondage into which we have sold ourselves by committing sin. In Christ Jesus, the sons and daughters of God are free at last. Verses 31 to 59 advance and enrich the two eons. The two orders pattern. The order Christ brings is the order of liberty. Tyranny, even from professing Christians, tyranny is broken. You belong to Christ. No man can enslave you. You dare permit no man to enslave you. Christ preserves your dignity in freedom. Christ liberates you from manipulators dictators and slavers whose delight is to keep you under their dominating thumb. No, no, you cannot bind me to a creature's personality, to a creature's agenda. That is idolatry. I worship no man. No man controls me. Christ has set me free from that tyranny. 
He has set me free from the tyranny of men, the bondage of sin, the enslavement of systems, as well as personalities who crush, who brutalize, who harass, who antagonize. Free in Christ, even in churches which abuse. The order Christ brings is the order of love. Hatred, enmity, hostility, even from professing Christians, is of a different order. You belong to Christ. No enmity can consume you. No hatred overpower you. You dare permit no hostility to possess you. And the love of Jesus is the love of his word, the love of his truth. In the arena from above, in the arena not of this world, you love Jesus because he has translated you from the eon of hate to the arena where his love enfolds you, his love possesses you, his love fills you forevermore, though no one here ever love you. Jesus loves you. And that should be enough forever. The order Christ brings is the order of joy, sorrow, depression, discouragement is of a different order. You belong to Christ. No sorrow can overwhelm you. No depression possess you. No discouragement Master you. Jesus is your master. Heaven is where you belong. There are no depressed people in heaven. Joy in Christ is the joy of seeing His day, His advent, His life, death, His resurrection. The joy in Christ is the gladness of participation in the same arena in which Abraham participated Joy in Christ is the exhilaration of identification with the same order with which Abraham identified. The intrusion of the eschatological arena into the heart of Abraham brought him face to face with the glory of Christ by faith. And that eschatological intrusion which you now behold by faith in the Son of Abraham translates you from darkness to light from slavery to freedom, from sons and daughters of the devil to sons and daughters of God, from hate to love, from unbelief to faith in the Son of God who is God, the great I Am, Christological, Soteriological, Eschatological Person. With the close of John chapter 8, Christ's covenant lawsuit is finished. He who first was put on trial, has reversed the forensic proceedings to accuse his accusers and to vindicate himself. Case closed once and for all. Jesus is who he claims to be. If you have any questions on the outline, I'll be glad to briefly answer them. If you're filling in the blanks, you should have 12 to 20 on dialogic unit number 1, narrative marker 20, dialogic unit 2, 21 to 30, narrative marker 30, dialogic unit number 3, 31 to 59, subunit A, 31 to 37, 
Statement 32, Misunderstanding 33, Explanation 34. Subunit B, 38 to 40, Statement 38, Misunderstanding 39A, Explanation 39B. Subunit C, 41 to 47, Statement 41A, Misunderstanding 41B, Explanation 44. Subunit D, 48 to 55, Statement 51, Misunderstanding 52, Explanation 54. Subunit E, E, 56 to 58, Statement 56, Misunderstanding 57, Explanation 58, Narrative Marker 59. Now you may want to have the outline of John 9 beside you as we turn to this chapter of the miraculous healing of the man born blind. How dark it was behind the blackness of that barrier, that barrier which darkened his unseeing eyes. Unenlightened, he sat by the way, reaching a hand into the light, reaching a hand into the light beyond his darkness, a hand begging, pleading for something more than darkness, some small gift, some little token, some glimmer of kindness to console, to lighten his darkness. Only darkness. Darkness as far back into his memory as he could reach, his reach, his mental reach. Never anything but darkness. Never any light at the end of his reach. His mother told him he had been born in darkness, Birth to him had been just more of the same. Black darkness. Black darkness outside the womb as inside the womb. Never daylight for him, ever nighttime for him. Never sunshine for him, ever inky darkness for him. His father led him out into the sunshine. He could feel it. But he could not see it. From his childhood, father and mother led him by the hand, the outstretched hand, for they were his light. They were his eyes. Still his world was darkness. And in the darkness of his world, he sat begging for his daily bread. Sat begging reaching out his hand while others passed by, passed by in the light on the other side of his darkness. And Jesus passed by. Jesus passed by and he saw. Jesus saw the man who could not see. Jesus saw the blind blind man in his darkness. Jesus passed by in the light, and out of the daylight, Jesus reached forth. Jesus reached forth beyond the light into that man's darkness, 
and Jesus touched that darkness. Jesus felt that darkness. As the cosmic darkness on the face of the deep in the beginning of creation, as the dark mantle of blackness which shrouded Egypt under the cursed plague, even darkness which might be felt, Jesus reached forth into the darkness of that blind man's world. Jesus reached forth and drew that blind man into a new world. Jesus reached forth and drew that man into his world. Jesus passed by in the light and stretched forth his hand his recreative, his curse-bearing hand. For light to shine upon these dark orbs, it will require a new creation, a lifting up of the curse, a rebirth in sight and light. This darksome house of Adamic dust will need that dust of the ground new created. For the light to shine, dust must return to dust, dust covered with dust, dust covered with life-giving dust, life-light-giving dust. For this blind dust to see the light, some dusty clay must touch the curse, cover the curse, wash the curse. For this blind dust to see the light, some dusty clay must draw out the darkness, transfer the darkness, swallow up the darkness in the waters of rebirth. To substitute the light of his world, Jesus spits water onto the dust of this world and touches, touches the blind eyes, covers the dark eyes with spittle clay and sends the man to the pool called scent. Jesus touches, covers that man's eyes with watery clay and sends him to wash, to wash away the darkness as the dark creation waters were illuminated by let there be light. Jesus touches the blindness, places his hands on the cursed darkness and draws that curse transfers that darkness to himself. Jesus, the vicarious one, says, let there be sight. The one sent by the Father to lift the curse by water and blood, the one sent by the Father sends this house of darkness to bathe in the sent waters and washing in the waters to which he is sent, the blind man experiences a new world. Water, spittle water, provides the transition to light. 
Water, Siloam water, dissolves the barrier of darkness. Water, spittle and pool water, flush away the curse, send the darkness into a world where it dies. And in the place of the curse, substituted for the darkness, the brightness of the world of the one sent by the Father. Blackness drawn away onto the light of the world. Inky blackness swallowed up in a pool of brilliant daylight. This new creation bringer says, Let there be sight. I am the light of the world. This new light dazzles. This new light leaves some things still unclear, unfocused. This new light lets the sun shine in, but its brilliance leaves some glimmers of confusion. There is yet more darkness to pass away, yet more light to penetrate, transform, radiate. The man who is called Jesus, I Heard his name, I heard his voice, but my darkness kept his face from mine. I heard his disciples, I heard him spit on the ground, I felt his touch. I felt him touch my darkness with his clay-covered fingers, but I did not see his face. I could not see him, I could only obey him. He said, go, wash. So I went and washed And I received the light, but my light did not yet shine on him. His light took away my blind darkness, but still I did not see him. And he brought me to the Pharisees. My light, my newborn, new created light shone upon my face. No more darkness in my eyes. I told them, these Pharisees, I testified to them, Jesus put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Could they not see? I could see. Why could they not see? With their light. They say He is a sinner. This one who brought a new creation, a new birth to my sight, This one who hallowed the Sabbath day by transforming it into a day of light. This one, they say, is a sinner. They say he is accursed who took away my curse. They say he is a darkness dweller who took away my darkness. They say he is blind to their light and therefore he is a bond slave of darkness. I am beginning to see more and more. Jesus is a prophet. Surely a prophet brings light. Isaiah the prophet said, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. This one opened my blind eyes as the prophet said. The very same prophet Isaiah said, 
There will come one who will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. This Jesus brought me out of my prison house of darkness, as the prophet said. Surely, Jesus is a prophet. But these Pharisees still do not see. They cannot see what I see. A creator of light on the Sabbath day. A fulfiller of prophecy in lifting up the curse of darkness. They cannot see that the light shines more and more upon Jesus. They refuse that light. They seem to cling to the darkness, the dark accusation that I was never blind. They seem to be what I once was, blind, shrouded in darkness. Call my parents. Call my parents. They will shed light upon my dark past. My parents will testify of the darkness, darkness in which I was born Darkness in which I was imprisoned and bound all those dreadfully black years. And the witness of the parents, the twofold witness of the parents, the testimony of the parents confirms the light, establishes the light by confirming the darkness. He was born blind. Now he sees. We are witnesses. This is our son. But the darkness, the darkness of the arena in which the Pharisees dwell, the darkness of that arena stifles this man and his wife, intimidates them, reduces them to fear. How he sees, we do not know. Ask him! Don't ask us. Ask him. He's of age. These Pharisees are relentless. They will not let me rejoice in the light. They call me again and again. They tell me Jesus is a sinner. How could a light giver dwell in cursed sin darkness? This light, this light which he has given me is beginning to illumine him. Once I was blind But now I can see. Can you Pharisees not see? What did he do, you ask? As if he is some dark magician, some charlatan of the black arts, I've already told you. Clay, water, sight. That's how it happened. Does repeating it again make it any clearer? If I say it again, will it illumine what I have already said to you? Are you beginning to be illumined with the light of following Him, of becoming like me, one of His disciples? We are disciples of Moses. We have no light as to where this man comes from. You have no light. He opened my eyes. My born blind eyes He touched. He gave me light, and you claim to have theological light and don't know where He comes from. Light creators only come from the Creator of light. If Jesus were not from God, the light, 
If Jesus were not from God, he would be as powerless in the face of darkness as I once was. Never since the beginning of time has anyone opened the eyes of one born blind. Surely, surely he does not come out of the darkness like you and me. Surely, surely he does not come from the arena of the curse like you and me. Surely, surely he comes from God. My eyes have been touched by one who comes from God. God's very own arena has shed its divine supernatural light upon my darkened eyes. Who do you think you are to teach us? We are the learned. We are the professional theologians. We are the religious establishment. We are the moguls, the movers and shakers. We have the light. You are a sinful darkness dweller. Out. Get out with your darkness. Go back into your darkness. And the once upon a time blind man went back out. Out in and into the light newly created for him by Jesus. And in the light of the new creation, Jesus found him. The light of the world drew the light of the new creation before his face and said, Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man, that light bearer, that heavenly man who rides upon the glory clouds of heaven, that celestial man who comes into the night with the clouds of light. Do you believe? Lord, I need a little more light. Who is he, this light bringer, this cloud rider, this glory bearer? And Jesus says, I am taking away all the darkness. No more haziness. No more cloudiness, no more blindness. The Son of Man, the light of the world, the prophet, the one from God, you see him, you hear him, and he who had been blind said, seeing all, Lord, Lord, my Lord, I believe. I see it all clearly now. You have made me a part of the new creation. Eyes to see, no more darkness. A heart to believe, no more blackness. I walk in the light, for I have seen, I have possessed the light of the age to come. The light of the world is Jesus. But the darkness still hovers. The inky black darkness still blocks out the light. The prisoners of darkness refuse the light, remain in the darkness. 
love the darkness. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Blindness deepens for those who hate the light. But for those dwelling in deep darkness who have felt the touch of Jesus' hand, upon them hath the light shined. And I saw a new Jerusalem, and that city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. This miracle story, unique to the fourth gospel, is artistically structured with an inclusio in what I call dialogic shifts. The inclusio marks this chapter off from what precedes chapter 8 and what follows chapter 10, though a very good case could be made for all four chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1 to 22, taking place around the Feast of Tabernacles, Notice John 7, 2 and John 7, 37. At the beginning and end of chapter 9, we find a literary envelope, a delimiting bracket in the form of interrogative response, or more popularly, Q&A, question and answer. The narrative core of John 9 is included within a question, the disciples in verse 2, the Pharisees in verse 40, and an answer by Jesus both times, verse 3 and verse 41. The narrative of the blind man then develops dialogically, that is, by means of dialogue or conversation with various characters or groups of characters appearing in the story. Note verse 8 where the neighbors enter into the dialogue with the blind man, thus leaving verses 1 to 7 as a unit. The next dialogue is with the Pharisees, verses 13 to 17, leaving verses 8 to 12 as a unit. In verse 18, the blind man's parents entertain a dialogue with the Pharisees, a conversation stretching to verse 23. Then a second interview occurs between the Pharisees and the blind man, verses 24 to 34, ending in his excommunication from the synagogue. Jesus finds and speaks to the blind man for the second time, verses 35 to 38. And finally, Jesus addresses the Pharisees, verses 39 to 41. This is indeed a carefully structured narrative of a marvelous supernatural transformation. But did you notice did you notice that Jesus is absent from most of the scenes in this drama? After he touches the blind man's eyes, Jesus disappears from the narrative until like a good pastor, like a good shepherd in verse 35, he finds his sheep 
his excommunicate lamb. Yes, chapter 10 of John's Gospel is built on chapter 9. Jesus at the beginning of the blind man's story, Jesus at the end of the blind man's story, but in between, Jesus off stage. Center stage from verses 8 to 34 is the blind man. In this gospel where there is so much magnificent centrality around Christ, here in chapter 9, Jesus is displaced by a former blind man. How is it that our author, the Apostle John, whose gospel soars like an eagle to the heights of heaven's logos, to the refreshing streams, to the one who is the fountain of living water, to the one who is the bread of life and the light of the world, to the one who is the resurrection and the life. How is it that this Christocentric gospel now, in chapter 9, displaces Christ for a transformed believer? The characterization of Jesus here in John 9 is healer, miraculous healer, bringer of the eschatological light, compassionate pastor. But this story develops by means of the characterization of the healed blind man. Ironically, in a gospel full of the centrality of Christ, in John 9, 8 to 34, Christ is not central. What is going on here? Has John forgotten himself? Has some redactor, some editor inserted the dialogues with a blind man because that editor has a non-Christocentric perspective? How do we justify the centrality of the blind man in a gospel which majors in the centrality of Christ? Well, perhaps we are not seeing things clearly. Perhaps we have our eyes covered with a hazy film which prevents us from fully seeing the light. Perhaps we need some illumination that enables us to see Jesus in the blind man and the blind man in Jesus. Perhaps we need to see what John sees. And that is why, that is why the blind man takes center stage at the heart of this drama because John sees it. Do you see what John sees? Or are you too busy glossing it over for your devotions? In the previous chapter of this gospel, our Lord has been involved in an intense dialogue with the Pharisees about his identity. Chapter 8, who are you? His parentage, chapter 8, who is your father? His testimony, chapter 8, your testimony is not true. The intense dialogic exchange in John 8 amounts to a verbal trial. Jesus charged by the Pharisees with blasphemy and demon possession. The Pharisees countercharged by Jesus with being bond slaves and children of the devil. In the course of the dialogic charges and countercharges, Jesus turns the tables on his accusers and places them on trial. The accused 
becomes the accuser. The blind man in chapter 9 is also involved in an intense dialogue with his neighbors and the Pharisees about his identity. Is this the one who said, used to sit and beg? About his parentage. Is this your son who you say was born blind? About his testimony. What was done to you? How did you receive your sight? And in the course of the dialogic charges and countercharges, the blind man turns the tables on his accusers and places them on trial. Verses 30 to 33. The accused becomes the accuser. As with Jesus in chapter 8, so with the blind man in chapter 9. Throughout the fourth gospel, there have been divisions over Jesus among the multitudes and among the Pharisees. The multitudes divided over Jesus when he claimed to be the source of the thirst-quenching water of salvation, chapter 7, 37. The famous division among the Pharisees occurs at the end of chapter 7 when Nicodemus defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin. This blind man, too, is the source of division. Division among the neighbors, verses 8 and 9. Division among the Pharisees, verse 16. As with Jesus in chapter 8, so with the blind man in chapter 9. Jesus is rejected as an outsider, not part of the acceptable religious establishment. The blind man is rejected as an outsider, cast out of the religious establishment. He is kicked out of the synagogue, excommunicated. Jesus breaks the Sabbath by healing the blind man. The blind man breaks the Sabbath by being healed. Jesus is the one sent by the Father. The blind man is the one sent to the pool called Sent. Jesus is charged with being a sinner, verse 24. The blind man is charged with being a sinner, verse 34. As with Jesus, so also with the blind man. I have reserved the most remarkable parallel to the end, the most remarkable parallel. In this Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself as the I am, ego, a me. You know several of these already. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, look at John 9, 9. Look at John 9, 9. Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, ego me." Do you see it? John saw it. And now you see what's happening, don't you? Now you see why John has preserved this wonderful story for us, don't you? Now you see why Jesus is off stage at the heart of this narrative while the blind man is in the spotlight. Now you see why the shepherd and his lamb share parallel experiences. Now you see the blind man's life hidden with Christ in God. Yes, you do see it, don't you?
the union between the life of Christ and the life of the blind man, the ineffable union between the light of the world and the one who is given that light, the sweet mystical union between the eschatological apostle, the one sent from the Father, and the one sent to the apostolic pool to bathe himself to wash himself, to cleanse himself in the sent one, the one who touched his eyes, the one who sent his darkness to hell, and the one who sent his light, his heavenly light, into that man's body and soul. You see it, do you not? John 9 is about being conformed unto the life of Christ John 9 is about being identified with Christ. John 9 is about the mimesis of Christ, the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. John 9 is about the precious imitation, the wondrous identification, the blessed conformity, which comes when Jesus touches the eyes of those who are blind. And now, do you see more? Do you see more now with the light that shines? Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in the light of the story? this story because now you see your life touched by the light of the world and you see your former life of blindness and darkness now marvelously transformed by the one whom the father sent to open your eyes and to drive away the darkness that covered your soul. Now you see yourself reproached, even persecuted and cast out from a cultural and often religious establishment which refuses the light, hates the light, even kills the light when unrestrained. You, too, are an outsider, like your Lord and Savior, like this blind man. You, too, have been left alone, alone with the light, alone with Jesus, to let your light shine, to bear witness to the light. Once I was blind, but now I can see. To share the sufferings of the light at the hands of a world dwelling in darkness. To walk as the sons and daughters of the light. The miraculous healing of the man born blind is not only unto salvation. 
It is to draw his new life into union with Christ so that the new man may live and breathe out of his identification with his Lord. The centrality of the transformed man born blind in John 9 is the revelation of a new creation in union with his creator and redeemer. He is folded down into Jesus as Jesus folded that spittle clay down upon his blind eyes. His life in the light, a reflection of his life union with the light of the world. Revile him, revile his Lord. Cut him off from the church of his day, cut off his Lord. Reject the light in which he walks, reject the true light. Remain in the darkness, remain in sin, remain outside of Christ, remain outside of the forgiveness of sin. You upon whom the light has shined, here is your life. John 9 is your story. Your story of being touched by the light. Your story of walking in the light. Your story of possessing the light in whom there is no darkness. Jesus is the light of your world forever and forever because his mimesis his mirror has pressed you down into himself now for your outlines on chapter 9 You should have the inclusio of the first line, the question from verse 2 by the disciples, and then the answer from verse 3 by Jesus, and then the question from verse 40 by the Pharisees, and the answer from verse 41 by Jesus. And the dialogic shifts, verse 8, the neighbors, verse 13, the Pharisees, verse 18, the parents, Verse 24, they, the antecedent, is the Pharisees again. Verse 35, Jesus. Verse 40, the Pharisees. And the mimetic paradigm means the mirror between Jesus and the blind man. Mimesis is a technical Greek term coined by Eric Auerbach at Princeton University in a very famous book that he wrote on Greek ancient Greek, Roman, and medieval literature called Mimesis. The book has had a powerful effect upon the narrative movement and narrative theology. It's a profound book. It's a remarkable book. There are a couple of sections in it which deal with biblical topology, and I borrowed the term Mimesis from it because it represents very accurately what is going on in John 9, what is going on, in fact, in the whole New Testament paradigm of being joined or united being, as Paul would say, en Christo, in Christ. All right, we'll take our break, and we'll come back after five minutes or so, and we'll begin uh, chapter 10.
Uh, for those of you that came in late, uh, please a reminder again that there will be no class on Monday, February 